Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Earlier this year, the AFP raids on the ABC's Sydney headquarters and the home of News Corp journalist Annika Smethurst led to a lot of concerns being raised around press freedoms in Australia. While the raids themselves were unprecedented, they represented just one element of an increasing erosion of journalistic independence, with concentrated media ownership, national security legislation and crackdowns on whistleblowers all threatening public interest journalism. Two organisations who are particularly concerned about this are GetUp and Digital Rights Watch. They've come together to produce a report on this issue. It's been co-authored by former West Australian Green Senator Scott Ludlam, and I'm very pleased to have Scott joining me today on the line. How are you going? I'm well. Good morning. Uh, You've written this report in your post-parliamentary life, obviously, in your capacity as a concerned citizen and self-described activist. Why is this an issue that you care about? It's something that I've had real concerns about for a long time. So it was co-written with a dear friend and former colleague of mine, David Paris, who's also... um, We used to work in that building in that same capacity... Um, for for both of us, I guess it's um, if if the media doesn't have the freedom to publish controversial stuff or exposés on scandals or corruption or maladministration inside governments, uh, we lose all of our other freedoms. So it's it's a foundational freedom um, to have the ability of journalists, particularly national security journalists, um, to be able to do their work unimpeded. Uh, and, um, you know, without the threat of the kind of intimidation that we saw earlier this year. Yeah, it's interesting that the two uh, stories, I guess, that precipitated those raids on Annika Smethurst and the ABC were about the government's surveillance activities on its citizens and also the actions of Australia's special forces in Afghanistan. So these are stories that absolutely pass the public interest test. If we talk about those two examples for just a moment, how can they, those raids themselves, be justified given the substance of those stories? Well, they can't. They're, they're completely unjustifiable. They're part of a bigger pattern, I guess, where you hear this phrase, national security. It's, there's no definition of that in any legislation in Australia, but the phrase is used increasingly as a shroud to mean whatever government wants it to mean. So national security was used um, as a kind of underlying justification for both of these raids. It was used as a justification for the ongoing, um, for the prosecution of Witness K and his lawyer Bernard Caleri. Uh, You know, national security was used as the justification for wiretapping the East Timorese cabinet rooms. And it's, it's a phrase that is well and truly being abused to cover up for corruption, maladministration, commercial espionage, and all of the other slimy things that go on. And I feel like it's time that we, you know, we really called that kind of behaviour out. Yeah, it's interesting because in the wake of um, 9-11 back in 2001, 
there were a whole raft of, of laws that were passed that essentially kind of you know curtailed the rights of, of citizens and would potentially make it harder to report on these sorts of matters. But they've been passed for, for, for many years now, but it feels like it's only really perhaps now with these um, raids and, and the fact that they were splashed across television screens and, and you know national newspapers and the like, together with the, the prosecution of, of Bernard Clary and Witness K, that people have only kind of just woken up to, to the threat posed to public interest journalism. Do you think that's fair? Uh, some people have been banging on about this stuff. I years, mean, I yeah, guess, <laughs> of course, some it, have been. It was overreach in the sense that it was a, you know, it was a highly public uh, overreach and abuse of power in a way that kind of tests the waters, I guess, of public tolerance for this kind of thing. You're going to raid Ultimo headquarters. That's a building uh, full of top-class journalists and also cameras. And so that, you know, was being live-tweeted real-time. The raid on the ABC was being live-tweeted real-time by, by a very senior political journalist there. And in a way, it's a test, I guess, um, uh, by the federal police and by the government and by the people who authorised these raids as to, well, what will we tolerate? And that's part of what this report um, that Dave and I have put together and that Get Up and Digital Rights Watch have collaborated on is um, those raids were horrifying. It's clearly an overreach. It's a scandal. Are we going to do anything about it? Or will we just kind of fall back into quiescence and wait for the next abuse to happen? Because you're quite right. Like in pointing out the rafts of legislation um, and increased police powers and state powers that have been passed since 2001... They only ever go in one direction. You know, they're ratcheting up in one particular direction. It's very, very hard to get this stuff wound back. Uh, and particularly in the hands of, of outright authoritarians, people like Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison, who don't hesitate to use these kind of powers for political ends, we're in a very dangerous place. So what this report is seeking to do is provoke... Um, a coordinated counter-reaction, I guess, that we get back on the front foot and start proposing the kind of rights and protections that we lack. Yeah, I'm interested in what that counter-reaction might look like. It's As I was reading this report, I was reminded of a conversation we had on this show a few weeks ago with um, Bastian Obermeier, the um, journalist from, from Germany who broke the Panama Papers story and kind of led, led that incredibly coordinated international effort on, on money laundering and, and fraud and, and tax havens and so on. And we were talking about his work in the context of these raids in Australia. And he was completely astonished that people weren't, you know, out on the streets loudly protesting the the overreach that was very much uh, represented in the raids on, on the ABC and a News Corp journalist. I mean, do you think culturally we grasp the gravity of, of the challenges and, and the threats that are posed to journalism in this country? It's kind of a complicated one. Like, journalists um, and media organisations in particular are under enormous pressure and stress in this country and aren't necessarily all that well regarded in the public eye. Mm. Journalists are held in roughly the same degree of regard as politicians and used car salesmen, and it's not a comfortable place to be and it's maybe it's difficult to build a civil society movement around press freedom when uh, so much of what passes for journalism in Australia is just shit, you know. Yeah. If you're, it's, it's difficult to rally people around that kind of stuff even though there are, some, there are some extraordinary journalists and publishers in this country doing tremendously important work. So I feel like what 
<clears throat> what's needed, I suppose, is rather than just copying it and being pushed onto the back foot forever and ever, is to come up with some proposals for how to actually get back on the front foot. Speaking bearing in mind that... that sorry, uh, sorry, go ahead. That, well, bearing in mind that press freedom is only one piece of the puzzle, um, this report is situated within the context of a broader Human Rights Act. So Australia... I think almost uniquely alone amongst democracies, we have no constitutional or legislated rights framework. People assume that we have rights because we watch so much American television, but there's no solid body of human rights law in Australia um, that protects either journalists' right to publish or our right to have this conversation or anybody's right to go out and demonstrate peacefully. That's, that's the conversation that we need to have. Should remind listeners, we're speaking with Scott Ludlam, former, of course, West Australian Green Senator. He's uh, jointly co-authored a report uh, put out through Digital Rights Watch and GetUp called Breaking, a report on the erosion of press freedoms in Australia. And that sort of campaign or, or push that I guess you're, you're talking about, Scott, in terms of enshrining uh, press freedoms in some kind of act. I know that, that you in this um, report have advocated for a Media Freedom Act. You're someone who is in a unique position, who, who knows what it feels like and, and looks like to work inside the tent, so to speak. Do you feel like there would be a push for this type of act from within the parliament that we currently have? Yeah, there is. There's, there's already moves afoot. So my um, former colleague, Senator Hanson Young, not that long after the raids actually initiated a Senate inquiry into press freedom, which mm. will look at the broader context of how we got here. And those um, reports, they uh, those processes have the ability to take evidence, to make um, proposals, and then those proposals can get fed into the legislative process on a good day. Um, I noticed that even though the Labor Party has repetitively um, supported the expansion of terror laws because they've been too timid to step up to the Duttons and the Abbots and the Morrisons of the world. They, uh, I think the um, leader of the opposition, Mr Albanese, had said some kind of encouraging stuff after the raids that they would look at propositions for law reform. Uh, and that's fair and square what this report is attempting to do. In a non-partisan way, we put some ideas on the table. We're proposing a Media Freedom Act that basically indemnifies journalists and publishers so that people aren't being arrested for doing their jobs. Yeah, it, it feels like a, a really important kind of, um, I don't want to use, the, use war language, but a battle to be fighting at the moment with some of the sentiments, for example, from uh, Home Affairs Secretary Mike um, Pizzullo suggesting that journalists should face jail for handling classified information, which is, of course, very much a, a live risk for journalists today and that they should check with government departments before publishing classified information. Now, you can see clearly why a government department might want that to be the case, but it goes very much against the whole reason for being of a free and independent press, which is to hold truth to power and call out some of the overreach of of government when it needs to be called out. Right, and in the absence of any kind of human rights framework, we enjoy those rights and those freedoms more or less at the pleasure of people like Peter Dutton and Pizzullo. And these are people with outright authoritarian tendencies. I saw some of his, um, some of the evidence that he gave a week or two ago, and it's it's frightening because you know that these people, uh, while they are attempting to completely pull the blinds down on the operations of the national security state, they're also pushing for maximum transparency and the abolition of privacy for everybody else. So at the same time as they're kind of withdrawing 
their own security state behind this one-way glass. They're forcing data retention on everybody. They're proposing the dramatic expansion of facial recognition technology across, you know, across jurisdictions right around the country. And we're in a position where these people have shown us over and over and over again that they have not earned our trust. They do not deserve and have not earned the trust to hold these unaccountable coercive powers. Uh, and in the absence of a strong civil society movement and a law reform pushing back in the opposite direction, um, we're, we're ending up in a, in a really scary place. Mm. And this report, as you alluded to earlier, Scott, um, goes beyond you know the, the raids and the associated concerns around journalistic freedoms and, and protection of whistleblowers and, and sources that might be kind of a consequence of the federal police um, you know rifling through journalists' records. One of the, the things it touches on is uh, freedom of information requests, and this was something I wasn't actually aware of, that FOIs are being refused at the highest rate since records of refusal began. That's quite astonishing. Why is that? The system's totally broken. Um, and the reason that that, that that section made it into the report is that it's one of the, uh, it's one of the ways, I suppose, in which um, the operations of government, and particularly the kind of national security apparatus, are becoming more and more opaque. Freedom of information has been substantially broken for a long time, but the ability of agencies to game the system and just wear you down and eventually provide you with just with acres of stuff that's blacked out um, has been beyond a joke for a very long time. Back when I was in office, we were once provided, after a long fight actually, with some documents we'd requested by freedom, through freedom of information process that they'd gamed, installed and delayed for months and months. Eventually they're handed over. And there are sections of Hansard transcript that have been blacked out. You know, like these mm. are public transcripts that have been published by the parliament. They come back in an FOI request blacked out it's completely out of control and it's um you know we didn't want to broaden the focus too much we wanted to talk about the media freedom act but the fact that that we have this so-called freedom of information system that is so open to 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 being gamed and installed is an important piece of the puzzle yeah what, what would it actually take to to uh improve that system because because it, it seems that um essentially you know governments are just getting away with it yeah, they are getting away with it, and it's difficult to marshal opposition support because the you know the main opposition party knows that it's going to want those those protections from freedom of information mm. in the next in government. So it's difficult to, to pull a campaign together. Um, but I, I think what the the most important thing that you would need to do is reverse the the kind of onus of understanding at the moment. There's um, the the way the act, not necessarily the way that it's the, the spirit of it, but the way that it operates is that when a freedom of information request crosses your desk, the expectation is withholding and, and blocking and secrecy. And we need to have an expectation of openness and transparency. Um, all of this material is being produced by public servants at taxpayers' expense. The expectation strongly should be for disclosure. Um, and that's, you know, that's the basis that we think we should start on. The whole Act needs to be thoroughly revised. Yeah, and one final thing um, I'll, I'll touch on is the nature of media ownership in this country. We know that we've had some of the most concentrated ownership of media in, in the Western world for some time. Now, of course, we've had nine takeover Fairfax, and there was that instance um, not too long ago when there was a Liberal Party fundraiser held at, at nine Sydney headquarters. That was, of course, a really 
bad look and and some nine journalists have have called that out and said you know they don't want to see that sort of thing again how significant is that though i mean do you think that is uh reflective of a a too cozy a relationship between some media organizations newspapers and the like and elected officials yeah i'm cozy is one way of putting it (laughs) um yeah, that, it is an important aspect of it um, because the, the Murdoch press is frequently just simply operates as state, you know, as state media. They're so tightly interlocked with the, with the Liberal National Party and their agenda that it's sometimes difficult to distinguish who's, whose messaging it is, whether it's coming from the Murdoch stable or whether it's coming from the Prime Minister's office. It's so tightly coordinated and synchronised that they might as well simply merge and, and be over and done with, which makes it all the more... Um, concerning, I guess, when you see uh, Fairfax being dragged down the same path in the course of its ownership by nine and mm. and the immense political pressure that the public broadcasters are under. If I can give just a little bit of a plug here, it makes community radio, community broadcasters and independent press all the more important given how tightly locked down commercial media ownership is in this country. Yeah, you get no disagreement from here. <laughs> I should hope not. One, one last thing, if we have a second for um, sure. while we're here, which we haven't touched on, is the canary in the coal mine for this, and it's an issue that's very live and one I guess I take reasonably personally, is a publisher at the moment is facing more than a century in a US prison for publishing evidence of war crimes um, and very high-level corruption. And, of course, that's Julian Assange. Mm. He's in Belmarsh Prison in the UK at the moment. Uh, facing extradition to the U.S. for doing exactly the kind of national security reporting and publishing that uh, that we're concerned about happening here on Australian soil. And that's an Australian citizen who's facing the rest of his life in prison for doing exactly this kind of work. So while this report is largely concerned with the Australian legal context and what we can be doing here, this is, a, this is an issue that crosses national boundaries. This is something for, for people everywhere to be concerned about. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is um, one particular issue that you're really strong on and, and have been campaigning on in your post-parliamentary life. What is next for you? I mean, you've, you've published this report. It's a really digestible synthesis of the, the range of ways um, uh, journalistic freedoms are, are threatened in this country. Where do you take this next? This was designed in part to be um, fed into the... the um Senate inquiry that's afoot at the moment. So there's two separate parliamentary inquiries that are underway. Uh, the one that we're focused mostly on is the Senate inquiry, which is, as a, we touched on before, is going to take evidence from a variety of different perspectives, including the Journalists Union, the MEAA, which is my union, working journalists and publishers, and independent civil society organisations, taking the best ideas for, uh, for pushing back and for law reform and for protecting publishers and journalists. So we would like to see this report uh, or a version of it considered by that committee. And what we're pressing for is for a Media Freedom Act proposal to come out of that. And if we can get um, crossbench and opposition support for, for these ideas, then we'll actually be on the way to having an agenda that we can cohere around, that we could potentially see some protections and see you know, a long overdue reversal of this one-way drive towards greater government secrecy. Yeah, what's well, really important work you're doing and, um, and best of luck with those um, lobbying and, and negotiations as those inquiries unfold. Thanks so much for joining us today on Triple R. 
Oh, thanks heaps for giving it some coverage. Absolute pleasure. As fires have raged throughout the Amazon, we're still only beginning to form a picture of how significantly it will impact on both the region itself and the Earth's atmosphere. This year alone, fires have ripped through 30,000 square kilometres of rainforest. That's roughly three times the size of the city of Melbourne. And there are concerns that some of the species affected by the fires may be lost forever. Juliana Santos is a biologist and PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne, and she's penned a really informative article for the University of Melbourne's online publication Pursuit on this very issue. And I'm very pleased to have her joining me today in the studio. How are you going? Hey Dylan, good morning. Uh, my pleasure to be here as well. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And I'm interested in uh, your, I, I guess, position as somebody from Brazil studying in this area in Melbourne. I know a lot of people are really concerned about what's been happening in the Amazon. Have you found people are coming to you and, and asking about it and, and wanting to learn more about the impact? Yeah, exactly, Dylan. Uh, after this, this crisis in the Amazon, many people from my department in the university or even friends came to talk to me. I think they were kind of expecting um, perspective for, for a local person uh, and try to understand what was going on there. Yeah. And so what's the nature of the work that you have undertaken in, in Brazil before coming to Melbourne? Um, so in Brazil, I'm, as you said, I'm a biologist and I spent a couple of years studying the rainforest, but not the Amazon exactly. Uh, I study ecology and conservation of mammals in the Atlantic rainforest, which is like today we, we, we just have 6% of this forest. And uh, so my background is not so much but uh, in the Amazon, but I know the context, the social um, and the social scenario in Brazil. Yeah, and someone with sort of unique insights on what's happening there, both from a, a conservation perspective, but also politically, I imagine, as well. So on, on the matter of, of the, the fires themselves, why is it that such an unprecedented area of the Amazon is on fire? So Dylan, uh, we do have fires every year. Uh, including the, in the Amazon as well, especially in, in the light dry season, which is now. But this year, what call our attention is that there's massive fires. So the number of fire outbreaks and how severe and how spread they were, or they are, they're still burning, uh, makes the mission of stopping them very hard. And so this year, the fire this year, I think, is a combination of deforestation and change in the climate. So that's why it's so catastrophic. Yeah, and we've seen the impact of a warming climate on some of the fires that have happened in Australia recently as well. There's been yeah. some incredibly old forests in Tasmania, for example, example um, you know, areas that have been destroyed that had existed since the, the kind of Gondwana era and so on. But in the Amazon itself, I mean, if we, if we take kind of climate change on the one side and deforestation on the other, people might be familiar with the, uh, let's say, kind of aggressive stance of the current President Jair Bolsonaro on clear the Amazon and, and developing it and that kind of thing. Has there been a rapid upsurge in deforestation since he became president? Um, yes, I think so. Because um, the president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, is supported by agriculture lobbyists, and this is not a secret. Uh, so, And Bolsonaro's speech on environmental issues is very clear. He thinks that Brazil has uh, too much bureaucracy in terms of environmental license, and this costs a lot for people to produce or anyone else who wants to invest 
in the Amazon, for example. And so he promised to change that from the beginning of his campaign. And the next day that he took the office, he tried to close the Ministry of the Environment. Um, but this was not possible because the pressure was high and he, he, ha he, has to, he had to keep the ministry. But he succeeded and took power of um, environmental agencies like IBAMA, which is a, a, a strong and solid um, gov governmental body responsible for overseeing uh, illegal deforestation. So everything that he's, he's doing, like, it seems that people think that they can't they can get away with it mm. if they practice deforestation because uh, the, the, the new policy of the president is contributing to that. Yeah, and what about now? I mean, I know that, that many people around the world have been really concerned about the extent of the fires in Brazil, and I imagine that could potentially, you know, increase pressure, pressure on the types of policies that Bolsonaro has been undertaking. Is there any sense that that has had an effect, that he's had to kind of step away from some of those policies, or has he just remained emboldened to continue developing the Amazon and, and, and allowing deforestation on such a large scale? So this is a good question, because the beginning of fires, when the fires just started, he, he was like, OK, these fires happen every year. And the Ministry of the Environment saying the same. The, mini the Minister of the Environment was asked if he would be there to see the fires and to see what they could uh, do to control the fires, and the minister just said, uh, no, I have more important things to do at the moment. Mm. So at the beginning was uh, was like that, but then after the social mobiliz mobilization and uh, in the international repercussion of these fires, the president had to, okay, our reputation is at risk now because of this. Mm. So I think that he had to step away a little bit about the environmental policies and try to recover the, the reputation in Brazil, especially uh, in the United Nations uh, conference. Uh, but I think in practice, he's not going to do that for longer. As soon as he thinks, he sees that these uh, catastrophic fires like are under control, he will continue to do uh, what he's doing, which is losing the environmental uh, policies and regulations. Mm. How does that play for people in Brazil? I mean, obviously, he won an election and had a whole range of controversial policies, um, you know, clamping down on minorities and all that sort of thing. Are people in Brazil broadly concerned about the, the direction of, of Bolsonaro's presidency at this stage, or do they still support him? Uh, there are people that are still supporting him. There are people that believe what he is saying, that the fires are common, the fires that happen every year. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's difficult uh, to explain because Brazil has lots of problems. We have social problems. We, ha we, have, a we have economic crisis. We have um, uh, high rates of crimes. So I think that people are more concerned about this kind of things. Mm. Although, of course, I cannot say that people just don't care about the Amazon. It's not true. But we have so much things to, to take care of that they still think that, okay, uh, Bolsonaro is it's going to fight crime, is going to recover the economy, and then we can, we can do something in regards to the Amazon. 
the Amazon is still there, is big, is, is big enough, and we, we have time to do that. I think this is, this is the feeling, mm. but... I think it's not true. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And it's a familiar tale in, in political societies across the world, particularly in, in recent times as kind of, you know, right-wing candidates have gained ascendancy off the back of, um, you know, poor economic growth or perception of the country kind of, uh, you know, ha- having some challenges going forward. I should remind listeners we're speaking with Juliana Santos, a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne, all about, I guess, the context within which these fires in the Amazon um, recently have have been raging. We're talking about the social context, political, and also, of course, the environmental. And your working um, here in Australia on your PhD is on the um, the way that Australian mammals, I understand, are adopting adapting to fires here. And you've worked on ecology and the conservation of mammals in Brazil previously as well. What do wildfires such as the ones we've seen over the past month or so in Brazil do to an environment and to the species that, that inhabit that environment? Yeah, definitely. The The thing is, the Amazon is one of the wettest areas in, 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 the, in the earth and is not adapted to fire because fire is not, is not common. Uh, we do have like some fire prone ecosystems like here in Australia, like our savannas are adapted to fire, but the Amazon don't. So many animals lives in the live in the in the trees. Uh, so they they are not uh, they don't know how to cope with fire. They didn't develop these adaptate these adaptations. So we are losing biodiversity with these fires. Yeah, and and as your article points out, there may be species that that we're losing that we don't even know exist yet. Exactly, because the Amazon is so big and there are so many places that we don't know how to reach. So there is no there is no much research there. So they are still working in recovering and describing species. So I think that we are losing many species that we even don't know. Yeah, and what about the the broader impact? I mean, it may be outside of your specific area yeah. of study, but the broader impact on on the atmosphere, for example, on fires such as these really extensive fires, because the Amazon is kind of colloquially known as the lungs of the Earth. Is there are there significant ramifications on the Earth's atmosphere from fires such as these? Um, about this statement, the lungs of the earth is not, it's not kind of true. I've heard it may be. Yeah. Like, it's a nice image, yeah. but perhaps not so accurate. Because this is about, uh, they are talking about oxygen. And the Amazon uh, produce oxygen, but of course the, the plants and all the trees also have to breathe. Mm. So they, they consume the, the, the oxygen. But the big thing is the Amazon plays a very important um, role in terms of CO2, the carbon uh, absorption. So when you are deforestating the Amazon, we are releasing tons of tons of carbon in the atmosphere. And also with fires, we are just even more, uh, tons of tons. And so we are on the verge, we are on the limit of the, the, the emissions. So we cannot, we cannot afford this. Hmm. So this is the, the, the global, global uh, problem. Do we know, I mean, this may be um, a very sort of basic or stupid question. Do we know what actually started these fires? I mean, is it kind of seasonal variation, um, but then areas of burning that previously could not burn because they were too damp? Is that sort of where they were generated from? No, Dylan. Yeah, yeah. This is this is not a stupid question right. <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it makes sense. 
because here in Australia, we know that sometimes the fire just happen um, with lightning or something like that. But in Brazil, in most of cases, it's because after clearing the vegetation, the easiest way to clean the, the remaining debris and litter is to set a fire. And this also helps with preparing um, the, the, the land for agriculture. So the fires, this is why the fires uh, start. The thing is, being the Amazon so wet, um, the fire that they set in the pasture used to just stop in the forest because there is no uh, food or the food is too wet to, to, to burn. Mm. So, but now we have more severe and more frequent droughts and so the food is becoming drying, drier. So it's, it's making the rainforest more vulnerable to fires. So um, the fires, that's why the fires are so, so big, because they are easy to, easy to spread. Yeah, and can easily spiral out of control, yeah, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. And there are also many indigenous people living in and around the Amazon as well. And I know Bolsonaro has, has spoken about, you know, supposedly integrating them into the economy and that sort of thing and, and not providing them with the, the level of assistance they have kind of provided um, in Brazil in the past. What is the status of, of, of those indigenous groups who live in and around the Amazon, I guess, given these fires that are happening now, but also the push that's coming from the current administration to um, challenge the way in which they're allowed to live through their traditional culture and so on? Yeah, yeah. the problem is one of the things that Bolsonaro has been saying is that he's not going to give, he's not going to demarcate any more indigenous reserves because he says that indigenous communities has, have enough. So this is controversial. Uh, and he also, he also took power from the main uh, body, the main institution responsible for demarcating these lands of the indigenous people. Mm. And he just subordinated this body to agriculture, to the Ministry of Agriculture. So he simply ignored all conflict of interests. And so this is, this is difficult to, to deal with. And the Amazon, uh, the, the indigenous communities in, in the Amazon, they really preserve the forest because it's the way how they live. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very complex situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's a very sad situation. Yeah, but, it is. But um, so grateful for you providing such informative and, and unique insights because I think we don't hear enough, um, you know, from people who intimately know the the political culture of of a place such as Brazil when we hear about these disasters that are happening. And I know a lot of people, a lot of listeners, I'm sure, are, are concerned about that as well. So really appreciate you coming in to the studios to enlighten us on this issue and best of luck with your research here in Melbourne. Thank you so much, Dila. It was my pleasure to be here today. Violence has once again broken out in West Papua over the past week as pro-independence protesters clashed with Indonesian police, leaving dozens of people dead. This follows a spate of similar clashes in August, which coincided with the 50-year anniversary of Indonesia's controversial referendum to take control of the province following years of Dutch colonial rule. So far, Australia has remained neutral on the matter, but there's a growing push for the world's leaders to take a stand, with some, including West Papuan independence leader Benny Wender, raising the issue at last week's UN General Assembly. 
Febriana Fados is an independent investigative journalist based in Indonesia who has followed the push for West Papuan self-determination very closely. And I'm very pleased to have her joining me on the line. Welcome to Triple R, Febriana. Yeah, thank you, Dylan. And so the push for West Papuan independence has been underway for many, many years. But can you take us through the specific events that sparked these recent clashes? Yeah, um, it started in um, after the Indonesia celebrated the Independence Day on August 17. Actually, like um, we usually celebrate by uh, raising uh, red and white flags. Every uh, every August 17, but it is not a mandatory. But then um, a military officer uh, pushed the Papuan student to raise the Indonesian flag in Surabaya dormitory, and um, it's specifically only to Papuan student, but not to other like non-Papuan dormitory or any any Indonesians uh, across the country. So it's a little bit like a terror for the Papuan student. Mm. And in, instead of, instead of uh, following the request from the military officer, the students say that uh, every Indonesian has a right whether they are going to raise the flag or not. And then they refuse to raise the flag, of course. Um, and then the police came and run up the dormitory and then arrest the student and even fired tear gas before arrested students just because the military officer and the other bystanders report to the police that the student didn't want to raise the Indonesian flag. So uh, uh, they call them like a monkey, a dog, um, a traitor, Something like that. So then the incident triggered the West Papuan who took the street and then um, large demonstrations took place everywhere across the region, not only to protest the racism against the Papuan student, but also to remember the Indonesian people that they still want to fight for the referendum. It means to seek independence from Indonesia. Yeah, and so there's also been another round of violence just over the past week. Can you take us through what's actually happened in, in West Papua most recently? Um, uh, there are clashes between the Papuan protester and the police and the military, the joint operation between the police and the military, and, um, and it's developed into horizontal conflict between the migrant and the Papuan. That's why some building and public facilities and government building were torched, and some migrant or non-Papuan were become a, a victim or were killed. By we have no idea is this by the Indonesian or the police or by Papuan. We have no idea still because the access to Papua is closed by the Indonesians. Uh, government, uh, especially for the foreign media. And journalists and activists heavily monitor, including me, by, by the intelligence. So we have to be careful if we want to enter West Papua. 
Yeah, and so what's it been like for you covering this story? Where do you get your information from and, and I guess who are you in touch with as this situation unfolds? I've been reporting from West Papua since years ago. So I still have my friends, my college, my neighbor, because I used to stay like for a couple months in Guamena, for example. So I used to talk with my neighbor where, uh, in the place where I stay. And also like uh, activists, uh, even students. So uh, the, my, my source and my environment are the person that I know very well, that I know them very close. I'm very close with them. So um, that's, that's why it's easy for me just to contact them. Even um, I didn't try to contact them, they are going to find a way to send any information to me. So it's really helpful for me. So I just put it in one story. Um, so I quote my own friends. It's not biased, actually, because I'm... Because I, I, I live or I make a friend with them, so it's mm. easy for me to, to make sure that I can trust them. And so what do we know about exactly, I guess, who has been targeted and whose lives have been lost most recently? Because I've read some reports of, of police gunning uh, young people down in the streets, but then some are suggesting, including uh, you know members of the government, that it's actually been West Papuan people themselves who have killed immigrants. Do, do we know what the truth of the matter is? Yeah, um, for me it's clear because some of my source also witnessed that the police killed Papuan and then West Papuan uh, were, were killed by... We don't know, perhaps Papuan, because I cannot clarify right now. I don't mm. want to go through of course. horizontal conflict is going on. But for for me personally, it's clear that some of us Papuan were killed by the police, according to my source. Of course, we need to do further investigation. But who killed the West, the non-West, uh, the non-Papuans? If it's if it's West Papuan itself. Um, or, or the police, we still have no idea. But they call them as a protester. So protesters uh, torture building who uh, and some of the uh, non-Papuan who still in the building. So they got killed inside of the building. Mm. And there have been violent clashes in, in West Papua, of course, many times um, throughout the past 50 years, but are there or can we expect any consequences or justice to be brought uh, on members of the police and potentially members of the army if they have participated in this killing of West Papuan people? Yeah, it is clear that according to Amnesty International, not according to me, that no one of the case of killing in West Papua broke to the justice at all. And now people demand justice after non-Papuan were killed during the riot. It's funny, if we want to bring justice, we just have to bring all the case. But since 50 years ago until today, no one of these case, no one of the military officer who, who killed the Papuan or who killed anyone in West Papua, and even the police, no one of them will of them go to the court or to the justice. No one of these cases uh, being solved 
by the government adults. And now, like, Indonesian outside West Papua demand the case of the killing of non-Papuan brought to the justice. For what Papuan, of course, they want to be equally, uh, uh, they want to be, be as equal as, in, as non-Papuan, but they also want the case brought to the justice. So no one, no one of the case brought to the justice under the day. Yeah, I'm interested also in the way this um, information or news is being received in in Indonesia more broadly. I mean, what's the broader media landscape's take on this? Is it easy to find access uh, to information that is accurate and, and, and tells the truth about what's happening in West Papua in Indonesia more broadly, in, in Jakarta, for example? Yeah, for national media... Um, the, character, the characteristic of national or Indonesian media um, since years ago, actually, they only quote the police or military. It is like typically Indonesian media. So if you find, if you read the Indonesian uh, media article about West Papua in Indonesian media, they always started with the quote from the police or the military in space trying to find a source or alternative source from the grassroots. Meanwhile, the international media is trying to fill the gap by finding anyone who is in the grassroots, but also still quote the military and then um, the, the, the police. Um, but sometimes uh, international media will use the quote from the victim first before the police and the military. So I think um, I think it's still I think in terms of equal or not, because you know that of course the police and military, their position is higher than the people who is very voiceless like West Bob one. It is important for media to put the voiceless the voiceless um, in in above all, all the witness, for example, above uh, the police and, and the military, we still can put the comment from the police and military. So I think um, uh, it, the, the national or Indonesian media, sometimes they don't tell the whole truth, but I know that international media put more sympathy to, to, to the uh, victims or these voiceless people, that's um, that's why some of the foreign journalists in Indonesia got attacked by the hardliner Indonesians, like hardliner and ultra-nationalist Indonesians, that they think that this foreign media is, is a threat for Indonesian sovereignty, for example. So that's the positions. And I mean, like, who who tell the truth? Everyone tell the truth. The problem is, uh, what is the angle? Uh, and are we telling the whole truth? If we tell the whole truth, we need to make an effort to interview someone from the grassroots or the witness. And uh, if we can debate about uh, the angle, or can you can use the angle of the victim, you can use the angle of the police, secure uh, the West Papua, but you still need to interview the people from the grassroots. So I, I, I see that how Indonesian and um, Indonesian media cover the story, 
it's a little bit um, not fair for the people in the grassroots. And I'm worried that this is no one will will. I I think that uh, in Alliance journalists, Indonesian Alliance journalists, trying to warn this Indonesian media, but they are just right now so close with, with, with the police and military. Yeah, yeah. I'm speaking with Febriana Fudos, an independent investigative journalist based in Indonesia. She's been reporting and, and covering the self-determination of West Papuan people for uh, a number of years and has been keeping a close eye on the recent clashes between pro-independence protesters and government forces in West Papua and further abroad as well recently. And some people might have read or or seen on the television about protests that have been happening in Indonesia over the past 24 hours that have been tied to a corruption law and um, the introduction of a new criminal code. Do you see those protests as in any way connected to what's happening currently in West Papua? Yes, of course it is, because one of the demands that uh, the protest, the student protest movement, want the government to withdraw the troops from West Papua, or in other words, the militarization. Because in uh, uh, the student protest movement believes that um, Indonesia should build dialogue instead of uh, sending more troops. But apparently, our government sent more troops than before. Like right now, it's like 6,000 troops. Uh, and they, they, they keep sending more troops right now, especially in Bramina. When, um, I guess, considering the way in which this issue is reported further abroad, uh, what responsibility do you feel that the international community and and particularly Australia as a neighbour of of Indonesia has in this case in, I guess, raising attention or, or calling out the types of violence that is happening there? Yeah, um... West Papuan actually hoped that some of the powerful countries like Australia, they believe that Australia is one of the powerful countries who has like um, Bergen in the UN, for example, or um, among the, the countries in, uh, in the world, that they hope that Australia um, do something for them, at least to push the government to solve the human rights violation and um, to, to, to push the government to start dialogue on the racism experienced by the West Papuan these past 50 years, for example. They, they hope that the, the Australian government be very active to lobby the Indonesian, for example, um, to not send more troops uh, rather than build a dialect. But also, not only Australians. Um, if we talk about West Papua, there are so many business interests from the uh, Western countries, such as uh, USA and UK. Yeah, mining and so on. One of the biggest mining, well, mining in, in, in Timika, West Papua. That's one of the biggest USA. And then the UK, we have the oil and gas company, BP Tungau, uh, the, the company based in UK. So, um, uh, the West Papua is waiting for the rule of this powerful country, Australia, UK, and then USA, to take any step to protect West Papua 
from what they call the oppressor of Indonesia. Because um, I myself see that um, this is like emergency. This is like the biggest since 20 years ago or um, after the, the, the bloody Wamena. Um, the, the bloody Wamena and then um, 40-something people, at least 40 people died at that time. This is like almost the same. And I heard that the number of the people who died is like, they say 100, but I cannot confirm, but I believe more than 30 right now. Amnesty International also said um, this is the biggest. So if everyone said that uh, before it's too late, Australia has to take, has to step in. I said it is way too late right now. There is no way that Australia has to wait for more time to step into uh, West Papua and talk with Indonesia. It is just too late right now. So there is no way for waiting for West Papua, uh, for Australia to think that, oh, we, we, we still have to discuss. Uh, and everyone says, oh, before it's too late, let's, let's, let's talk about this. It is, it is already too late, actually. Yeah, it's interesting because some people in the media over here are making connections with Timor-Leste's independence and Australia remains fairly uh, uh, not involved um, in that uh, push for some time until we finally did. And I think a lot of Australians see it as a point of pride that we tried to kind of help the situation there. I've I've read about some uh, concerns that with some uh, so-called migrants in West Papua being evacuated, that that could potentially be paving the way for a new round of of violence inflicted by the police and or the military. Do you share some of those concerns? Yes. Actually, I heard about this when the first time the protest took place, that um there there were potential horizontal conflict. I knew that some of the Papuan in the Highland came to the city heavily armed or fully armed with uh with arrow and bow and with bow and arrow and then um also I heard about non Papuan for example from from Makassar they also fully armed with body. It's like a traditional knife from Sulawesi. Mm. And then from uh, from from the weapon that they bring, that they, they, they carry, at that time I heard from my source, I know that there, there will be, that would be like a potential horizontal conflict, just like what happened in Timor Lake. So that's why when the government blocked the internet, that's make me like scary because no one no one will get the whole story about what happened right now in, in West Papua. It is it is happened right now that that horizontal conflict. Yeah, and, and the internet has been, been cut as well, I understand, which makes it difficult to get accurate information about what's happening, but also for people in West Papua, I imagine, to um, know the extent of, of the clashes and, and the violence that's been inflicted. Yep. Yep. Well, it's um, it's been so great speaking to you today, Fabriana, and very much value your insights on this issue, particularly when information is really hard to come by. Best of luck continuing to uh, cover this issue. I'm sure it's difficult, you know, covering these t- types of issues in Indonesia. All the best, and hope to speak to you again sometime in the future. Thank you, Dylan. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.